Hello and welcome to the Sound on Sound People and Music Industry podcast with me, Sam Ingalls. Under normal circumstances, I would hope to be bringing you this episode from the NAM show in Anaheim, California. Unfortunately, these are not normal circumstances, and so we're forced to do it via Zoom instead. But it still gives me great pleasure to introduce Tony Agnello and Richard Factor from Eventide. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. So the first thing I need to say is congratulations, because 2021 actually marks half a century of Eventide. That's an amazing achievement. Are you going to be doing anything special to market? So we're going to be celebrating this uh, this anniversary all year. Yeah, you know, we were hoping to have a, a concert uh, to celebrate, but obviously with COVID, that's that's going to be put off. So if we can all get you know be take off our masks and be together somewhere December 31st, I'd, I'd be all for that. It would still be our 50th anniversary. And if not, maybe we'll do it for our 51st anniversary. So let's talk about those early days, because back in the 60s and 70s, it was actually quite normal for studios to design and build their own equipment. And very often there wasn't anything on the wider market that actually met their needs. Uh, is that how Eventide got started? Uh, it's, it's literally how we got started. Because uh, my buddy Steve Katz, who's one of the uh, founders, had had this uh, studio, which was very small. And it had an MM-1000, which is a 16-track, enormous, physically enormous tape recorder. And he had no room for an assistant. So uh, he, he came to me and said, hey, you know, I, uh, I don't have room for an assistant. I want to be able to find something on the tape. And I can't just turn around and do it and waste time in the session. How do I do that? And uh, it was just the very beginning of integrated circuits. And I put together a tape search unit. So the studio needed it. Um, We built it. And the next thing you know, uh, we're in business making these things uh, uh, as an OEM for Ampex. My mother said to me, you're going to quit your job? You got a job. You got a day job. You're, You're like getting paid? And I said, well, you know, what's the worst that can happen is this is going to fail and I'll get another job. Uh, I could, I could have done that. You know, I, I had skills. So, uh, I, I quit my day job in the military industrial complex, started Eventide. My mom looked up in horror and, uh, here we are. Uh, no, we, we did not anticipate anything other than let's give it a try. Mm-hmm. At this time, of course, the studio world in general was almost entirely analogue, but even Tide started making digital products almost from the very beginning. What was it that made you see the potential for applying this new digital technology to audio? I, I can actually answer that very well. I was working in the military-industrial complex, and uh, we made things with integrated circuits for, uh, for audio. We made spectrum analyzers and uh, digital filters. And one day I just listened to the input and output of, of this very exotic device that, uh, you know, nowadays would, would fit on, uh, on a fingernail, but back then was a rack mount gadget. And I said, boy, that's really interesting. I've never heard anything like that. That was about a year or two before, uh, before Eventide started. And I said, this is neat because uh, all we had before then were uh, were analog components and maybe a plate echo machine. So that inspired me. So this was a military device. 
Uh, it was uh, intended for military. Uh, I don't even remember exactly uh, what the, the final app was. In fact, it may have been secret and nobody ever told me. But it was a thing called a matched filter, and it had uh, time delay and accidental reverb because uh, you couldn't get rid of that then. So uh, it was quite the interesting device. So your work on digital audio led you to create the product that was the first really big Eventide hit, the H910 Harmonizer. What was the key innovation there? Well, the key, I guess the key innovation was... was uh, incorporating a number of, of controls to take advantage of pitch change and, and time delay. Being able to set the length of time delay and feedback around it. Um, but truth be told, what I thought I was designing was a musical instrument. So the, the, the prototype of the H910 actually had an integrated keyboard. Pressing middle C would always give a unison, but you could move up or down the keyboard to create harmonies around your part. And the number of um, musicians, I think Elton John toured with it, um, you know, to, to create harmonies in real time. I don't really remember how we made a decision not to make a musical instrument other than uh, packaging the electronics as a rack mount product was much easier for us. And so we did that and offered the keyboard as a control accessory. And we did sell some of those keyboards, Richard, I remember. I remember yeah. building some of those, quite a few. So that's, that's really what my intent was. Now, you know, I had the advantage, as Richard said, you know, we had a, a small studio in the same building. And when I got my start at Eventide, I was doing a lot of testing of delay lines. And uh, the ICs in that time period uh, were a bit dodgy. Um, they, they suffered some, from something called infant mortality. So we would have these units, we'd, we'd produce them, but we'd need to keep them around, burning them in for several days before we uh, risk shipping them to actual customers. So, um, so I had the luxury, you know, I was in bands and I was doing some recording of, of having uh, more delay lines, I think, than any, anyone else on the planet at the time. And I could drag them up to the studio, put them on several tracks, use the patch bay to feed, feed around them, and uh, just discovered a lot of cool effects and thought it all could be packaged in one neat unit, and that was the harmonizer. Well, if you go back to uh, the very early 70s, there really weren't, I can't really think of other rack mount effects units. You know, as Richard said, ICs were still new. So what you would find in recording studios, you know, other than the console and mics and speakers were uh, EQs, compressors, limiters. Um, but, I, you know, I really can't think of effects devices, you know. You know, Dave Davies, you know, cut up his speakers to get effects. Uh, uh, there were a lot of mechanical effects. Tape was, well, well since the 40s, I guess Les Paul, uh, you know, was the pioneer there, you know, speeding up tapes, uh, editing and reversing segments of tapes using tape delay. No, no question that tapes, that the tape machine was used for effects. Absolutely. But that's, you know, that that's of uh, a different sort than a, a box that's, uh, that's, a, that's, all electronics that sits in a, you know, in a rack with knobs. Of course, there was the phaser, but uh, that was us, instant phaser. Right. The phaser was, pro yeah, I guess we could make the point that the phaser was the first uh, pro audio rack mount effects box writ large. 
So it sounds as though it was quite important for you that you had this kind of symbiotic relationship with a working studio where you could test out your prototypes and your new ideas on real projects. Absolutely. And, and, be, and playing music and recording music. I mean, it was really all about music. I mean, Richard was playing drums. I was playing guitar. I, I was pretending to play drums. I was, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I like to joke that we're, uh, you know, we, we play instruments uh, poorly, but we play. Still play. We also, um, at least a couple of sessions, Richard, we, uh, we used the recording studios to actually do some, some recording. And how did that real-world experience inform the design of the early harmonizers, for instance? Richard designed three very early delay lines, and uh, the first two were shift register-based. But then random access memory became available, and Richard designed a 1745M, which had RAM. And it was a modular device, and he um, designed a module to do pitch change. So once again, I had access to these things, and I was recording. So I quickly discovered that, gee, if you do a little bit of pitch change, you can really uh, widen you know, the vocal or a guitar lead. And maybe a little bit more pitch change and feedback around it, and you arpeggiate the sound. So it was really using the, you know, what Richard had, had designed very early on that informed me in designing the, the harmonizer. By the late 1970s, eventide processors were incredibly popular and they were being used on practically every record ever made. Could you always hear them when you listened to those records? Only if it really stood out. You know, bear in mind that once these devices got into studios, and, and I've had this conversation with... Uh, with producers and engineers from, from, from the 70s. And if you asked them what they used our devices on, it was pretty much everything. So you might use just a little bit of pitch change, you know, to, uh, to, to have the vocal sound a little bit fuller. <clears throat> you might use a little bit of flanging on a snare or a hi-hat. Um, so they were putting these, they were, they were putting these effects um, used in, in fairly subtle ways on many, many tracks. And we certainly didn't hear that. Uh, also bear in mind, you know, stereo was still fairly new and this was a way to spread the image. So if you look back at, uh, and we have some photos of some studios back in the day, they would just stack up racks of our, of our gear and not to use, use the gear or the effects in a dramatic way, but to use them in a, in a subtle way to sweeten the sound. If someone used it noticeably, like um, Visconti used it on uh, Ashes to Ashes, David Bowie song, where there's that quirky, warbly keyboard sound, um, you know, and that, and that was pretty noticeable. Of course, he wouldn't tell anyone how he did it, but we kind of knew. And did people ever come up with uses for the products that you simply never anticipated? A lot of uh, TV broadcasters would use uh, the harmonizer or the uh, pitch changer or whatever to, uh, to get an extra minute of airtime or an extra minute of advertising in a, in a program. And uh, you could do it without, without pitch change because they'd speed up the tape and lower the pitch. And uh, that would uh, mean that the program, of, uh, say a 30-minute program, would be over in 29 minutes. You could slip in a local spot or whatever uh, and make some bucks. One of the technologies that has really changed pop music over the last 20, 25 years is automated pitch correction. And that's something that was possible up to a point with the earlier harmonizers. Um, but it's also something that you actually anticipated. 
for this 50th anniversary, I've been opening up some uh, boxes that I've had packed away for, for decades. And I came across a, uh, uh, a patent disclosure from, what was it, like 80, 80, uh, 79, 81, about 10 years before Autotunes was, was patented, uh, where we'd actually described, you know, where, where we proposed Autotune. I think the patent, either the patent attorney was too expensive or we just thought it was a pretty obvious step. So we'd never, never pursued it. But yeah, we, we, we knew that was happening and we could see it coming. And com- right around 1980, 79, 80 is when, you know, Apple and, and uh, Sinclair were first offering uh, computers. And obviously you would need a computer to truly do auto-tune to dial things in properly, but you could see it coming. It, it, it really seemed obvious, and I was pretty amazed when 10 years later, uh, the patent office actually granted a patent for what seemed, some, what seemed so obvious. Another Eventide milestone product was the SP2016, which I've seen described as the first programmable processor, but also as the first product ever to support plugins. Um, tell us a bit about that. It was an array processor, so it was a general purpose programmable u- unit. It, it wasn't purpose-built to do reverb or pitch change or anything in particular. It was completely programmable. So, you know, in today's world, you know, we're, we have modern uh, CPUs, mo- modern processors that have so much processing power that they can handle uh, audio processing in real time. That wasn't the case in the late 70s. Um, so the 2016 actually pr- predates DSP chips, which came along. Uh, for instance, like the H3000 and, and every general purpose audio processor from then on used DSP chips. But uh, the 2016 was early on. Uh, DSP chips were not available. Um, I understood what it would take to do real-time uh, audio processing and uh, built an array processor, which required lots of, lots of ICs, fairly uh, simple ICs, um, and built it in such a way that uh, people can plug in ROMs, which would have the code to run any, any audio effect. Um, it got pretty popular because we, we managed to de- develop some really great sounding reverbs for it, but it also scrambled time, uh, which is more like a granular synthesis effect today. Uh, it had vocoder um, programs. Um, you know, it, had, it was a looper. Don't forget you know, it, band delay. And Bandelay, which uh, Suzanne Chani used, used famous, famously, and others, you know, where you could where you could create a, a number of um, digital bandpass filters and delay each band by a different differential amount and recombine them. So it was a it was a general purpose signal processor, and uh, you know, at least one one third party uh, created some effects for it, and people who owned this box could. Uh, you know, buy a plug-in, buy a, a, actually it was physically a IC that you would plug in to add a new effect. But, you know, it became obsolete once uh, DSP chips became available. It, it, it was much more cost-effective to, to use a CPU that was specifically designed to act like an array processor. So as well as the processors that we all know and love, Eventide also made a lot of obscure OEM gadgets and things. What's the, what's the weirdest thing that Eventide ever made? Uh, a buddy of mine who was working uh, at the uh, at the New York State Health Department wanted uh, he, he had this notion that uh, you could uh, dispense microliters of uh, reagents using uh, a vibrating um, 
vibrating transducer and a static electrostatic field. And uh, you could literally calibrate this thing in droplets, nanoliter droplets. And I was uh, asked, could I build one of these things? And we used, a, uh, I think it was uh, like a Teflon, uh, Teflon ring. Uh, I, I don't even remember. I mean, remember, this is 50 years, five zero years ago, literally. More than that, possibly. But uh, anyway, uh, made this thing with a, with a thumbwheel switch that basically uh, you could adjust how many drops, nanoliter droplets of a chemical reagent could, uh, could go into a cup. And that was weird. I never thought I'd be in uh, chemistry. So, so Richard, tell me, was he making LSD? This is the, the New York State Health Department. It was actually, you'd get checks from the state. So uh, maybe it was LSD now that you mentioned it. I don't know. And of course, you guys were always experimenting with new ideas and new technologies, and sometimes those led to successful products. But I guess there must also have been times when a cool idea just never quite made it off the test bench for some reason. Back in the, I think it was probably mid to late 70s, uh, TRW, which I think stood for and maybe still does, Thompson Ramo Wooldridge, uh, came up with a solid state multiplier chip. It had a heat sink on top. And you could literally multiply, I think, first a 10 by 10 bit number and then maybe a 12 by 12 and maybe even a 16 bit multiplier. It dissipated a few watts, uh, but I immediately saw the possibility of making an audio product out of it. But this was uh, before the 1066, which actually had processing. All this was was a multiplier and a bunch of coefficients. And, uh, and at whatever sampling rate. And we built, oh, I don't know, two or three of them. I was playing around with floating point converters at the time, which kind of worked because you couldn't go out and buy a really good A to D. And I wanted better resolution than what we were using. I, I don't remember how successful that was because here's the interesting thing. We literally built, manufactured two of these products, two, and we sold one and it ended up going to Brazil, where you will recall Brazil is a very large country, bigger than the United States physically. I have no idea who ended up with it, but somewhere on earth, maybe still in Brazil, is the Eventide S1066 special effects unit. Wow. And what did this thing sound like? It sounded very much like a special effects unit without too much complexity. It was just, a, it was really a filter. Whatever you can do with coefficients, it could have done. Nowadays, of course, Eventide's technology isn't just found in old school rack-mounted hardware boxes. Uh, you can also buy Eventide plugins and Eventide guitar effects pedals. In many cases, the same algorithms, but you have to adapt those for three very different user interfaces. I imagine that's a bit of a challenge. It's crazy making. Not, not, not only the user interface, but just trying to go to market um, to, to this disparate set of customers. You know, some of our, uh, our customers are in film and, uh, you know, film post-production. Some are in recording studios. And then there are guitar players. Um, and then there are, you know, hobbyists who are downloading our, our plugins. Now, we're not smart. It, it really is. It's insane. 
So when you're thinking about adapting one of these algorithms for use in, say, a foot pedal, what are the considerations that you need to bear in mind? Well, how, how a guitar player is going to use it. Look, it, our advantage, Sam, is that I would say everyone who's involved in conceiving and developing these products is a musician. We all play. Most of us, many of us are guitar players. I, me- I mentioned Russell earlier. He's a bass player. You know, he's been in bands that have toured. Christian and Patrick and Colin, uh, you know, the, the folks are product specialists. They all play. Uh, they're all in bands. So we're basically designing these products for ourselves. We have a sense of how we, we want to use them. We've also been very fortunate in having been successful that we have relationships with, uh, with many artists and each time we conceive of a new product, we run that by artists that we've worked with in the past who we, who we know. So um, I, I was being flippant, but, it, but the fact is a lot, of, a lot of thought and work goes into that. Uh, asking advice, you know, blue skying, suggesting things. Um, you know, I know when we, when we released our, our first um, guitar pedal, uh, the Time Factor, our concern was that it had so many knobs. It had 10 knobs. And we had some early uh, users, um, actually early testers, who were concerned that we had so many controls on, on the box. But we felt that that was necessary really to exploit all, all of the possibilities of the algorithms and the effects that we were putting into that box. So off we went, and the product has been successful. We then followed that up with a number of other boxes with virtually the same UI. Um, and then we came to the H9, and we went from 10 knobs to one knob, thinking, one knob? We just had 10 knobs. We thought we needed 10. Now we can get away with one. But we worked hard at, at, at defining that one knob in such a way that it would work for, for a user. Um, we added Bluetooth so that the more the deeper control of it can be, uh, you know, can, can sit as an app in your your iPad or iPhone or Android device. But in you know, in each case, it's it's starting from somewhere and then doing your doing your homework and having having you know listening, having arguments, um, and finally making some decisions. Uh, you know, obviously we can't always get it right, but we do do our homework. We do listen. Many of Eventide's plugins package technologies that we're familiar with from rack mount units, but some of them actually incorporate new technologies. Uh, perhaps the standout there is the plugin Fission, which uses a technology you call structural effects. What's that all about? That was all about uh, being fortunate to uh, to be working with some some brilliant um, DSP researchers, uh, Russell in particular, Russell Wedley, and. Um, I was just amazed when he actually demonstrated this effect for me because it, it throws a lot of signal processing at, at a problem that seems fairly simple. You know, when we hear a sound, we can perceive that that sound has a timbre, it has a, has a component that's transient and a component that's tonal. And it's a bit of a magic trick, really. It's really how we perceive sound. And he's come up with this technique where um, the software mirrors our perception in a, in a remarkably 
accurate way. And what was what was most convincing for me is when he demonstrated for me and was able to split a sound into its transient tonal components and then recombine it with virtually no artifacts, uh, I knew he was onto something. And you know, uh, I can tell you that we're working on other on other plugins and and other products that'll take advantage of this this underlying technique. It, it really is different. Uh, you know, in in true eventide fashion, we haven't done a, a a bang up job of of marketing this technique, but I think people are starting to catch on. It, it's been used brilliantly in some places. So, do you think that plugin processing opens up new possibilities for digital audio, which would have been harder to implement in hardware? Well, it, well, yes and no. Uh, you know, you, you say plugins, but the plugin is running on a CPU somewhere. So, really, what's at the heart of this is the fact that these processors have gotten so screamingly fast, they have so much memory that you can, you know, every year you can do more. There's more that you can do. You can run much more complicated algorithms. And so whether it's sitting as a plug-in or that CPU is sitting behind the front panel of a rack mount box, you know, like our H9000, that's really what the driver is. And truth be told, that's always been the driver. As Richard pointed out, this um, this multiplier chip made it possible to to think of something like the 1066. That's that's always been what our next step has been. Something new comes out that you can take advantage of and do something that you could never have done before. Whether it whether it exists as a plugin or not, it's what's what's behind that is that plugin is running on a CPU somewhere, you know, either in an iPad or in your phone or in a computer or in a rack mount box. It's just it's oh. the sheer processing power that's available to you. And what goes hand in hand with that is, you know, the, the software tools to build uh, new effects have, have become much more sophisticated. Now, the 2016 uh, actually had a development environment that we wrote ourselves, uh, which was its own, you know, assembler, compiler, specific for that one-of-a-kind array processor. And that was a fairly primitive tool. Tools today are light years ahead of that. At the other end of the scale, complexity-wise, from plugins and guitar pedals, your current flagship processor is the H9000, which you describe as a network effects platform. Do you think that audio over IP is going to become increasingly important in the studio world, or is it going to remain limited to live and broadcast? It's uh, it again. That's predicting the future. It seems to be. We know we know of some studios deploying it. We know in uh, you know in venues if uh, we ever get through this COVID situation and and venues are active again, uh, it's a lot more cost effective to you know to run an Ethernet cable around than than have to have audio snakes every which way. Uh, we know broadcasters are adopting uh, network audio. Uh, earlier I mentioned you know post production facilities. Uh, they use network audio. So it just seemed logical that if we were going to make a flagship processor from Eventide that ran all of our effects, that handled many, many channels of audio, that it should it should be smart enough to sit on an audio network. So, you know, so we designed that box with uh, some expansion cards so that optionally uh, a user can say, well, I'm running a Dante network or a Maddie network, and I want to connect that way. 
I'm sure you're right that it's difficult and dangerous to predict the future, but equally I'm sure that all of our listeners will join me in wishing Eventide a very happy and successful and prosperous future, building on their first 50 years in the business. So thank you, Tony. Thank you, Richard. If you'd like to know more... Richard has an episode of the Gear Club podcast where he talks more about the history of Eventide and there's also plenty of materials available on the Eventide website. So thank you for listening and thank you to my guests, Tony Agnello and Richard Factor. Thank you, Sam. This is great. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening and be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode where you'll find further information along with web links and details of all the other episodes. Oh, and just before you go, let me point you to the soundonsound.com forward slash podcasts website page, where you can explore what's playing on our other channels. Music.